I said one man and one woman. I'm going to stick to that, except Joyce is starting to stand up, and Tammy beat her to it. So I figured I had to let her get her word in. You know, we really do have a great God, and the truth is, is that he does things in our lives every single day. And, um, and, and hopefully we will learn to recognize that more and more and, um, and give him the, the credit for it and give him the glory. Uh, we had a wonderful service here on Friday night uh, and uh, celebrating the life of, uh, of uh, Dick uh, Durbin, who went on to be with the Lord, you know. But there was uh, just a testimony to what God had done in his life and through him. And um, I'm just glad to be here with you all today, glad to share my Sunday with you, glad to worship the God that we have, uh, that has loved us and has bought us with that great price. Uh, Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. And this is what uh, is written there. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. All men are like grass, and all the glory like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you so much for your goodness to us. Thank you, um, Lord, that every single person here in this room today you love, and you love in a way that is really beyond our comprehension. And Lord, how many times I think of the fact that you love me, and I'm overwhelmed by that thought, and And then I think about how you love those I love, and you love them even better. And you love my friends, my family. You love people I should love and don't. And you love even my enemies. You love every person in this world, and you demonstrated that by sending your Son into this world to die in our place, to taste death for every one of us, that we might be set free from our sin. And, Lord, you went beyond and above anything that we could expect. Not only did you give us your Son, but you've given us your Spirit to live in our hearts and to enable us to live the life you've called us to. And you've blessed us with this wonderful treasure of your Word. And so we ask today, Lord, as we look into your Word, that you would speak to us. And you would address those places in our heart that need addressing. And we'd hear the voice of the living God and that we would embrace what you say. And I ask, Lord, that you, by your Spirit, would help us to put it into practice in our lives. Lord, we um, need you every single day of our lives. 
and you make yourself available to us every single day. Thank you. And it's in Jesus' wonderful name that we pray. Amen. So this past summer, um, Anne's father and his wife, Anna Lease, uh, stayed with us for a week. And I, I have to tell you, I really did enjoy their visit. I enjoyed their stay, and I was sorry to see them go. Um, I got to know Anna Lease a, a little better during that visit, and I learned something about her childhood. I, uh, she was born in Germany and grew up there, and of course I already knew that, and she'd married an American soldier, and that's how she ended up in the United States here, and of course I, I knew that. But what was fascinating to me was to hear her talk about her early life. Um, she was a child during the Second World War, and um, her father well, at that time was already dead, and she had a a brother whom she barely remembers who was a German in, uh, soldier in the army and he was killed in action. Now she was quick to tell us that they were not Nazis and they didn't have anything against the Jews but, but her brother um, had no choice. When he was drafted he simply had to go. That's the way it was then. And uh, they knew nothing at that time of Hitler's death camps, although they did know the Jews were being mistreated. But she said, what could we do? We had no power. They didn't like it, but there it was. And when the war ended, they heard about uh, all of the, uh, the evil that Hitler and his henchmen had done, and they were simply horrified by it. And life in Every, for everyone in Germany then was hard, but especially for the poor. And they were often hungry, and they ate a lot of potatoes and lard when they could get it. And her mother found work wherever she could, and everyone worked. Everyone, even the little girls, had their part to do. And somehow her mother held that family together, and they got through the hardships, and the times got better. And it was really interesting to me to hear her story. I mean, she told me things that I had never really thought about before. And maybe I would have realized some of them if I'd ever thought about it, but I, I didn't. And, and there were other things that I would have never guessed even if I had tried. And she also, as the expression go, kind of put a face to some of the things that I did know, such as how bad the economy was in Germany after the war. You see, her story kind of made it real to me, and I understood it like I never had before. And that, of course, is nothing new. I mean, hearing someone else's story often gives us new and, and better understanding of things. And sometimes we even feel as though we can identify with them. I mean, distantly, I, I, we haven't gone through what they went through, but, but we at least see it and we can maybe imagine what it was like. And we may even ask ourselves what we would have done in that situation. We may even wonder if there is something we should be doing now, say, to attempt to change some situation, to alter the course that we or others are on, or if maybe we should be preparing ourselves our own hard times should they come. Well, today we're going to look at the story of a group of people who lived almost 2,000 years ago, 
And yet, though they lived so long ago and lived in another part of the world and under a different political system and culture and spoke another language, we really do have a great deal in common with them. We share at heart the most important thing that people can share, and that is Jesus Christ. They, like us, were Christians, and I think their story can help us. But that story is told so briefly in the scriptures it's almost easy to overlook it even as you're reading through it for four short verses in the bible tell us everything we know about these people i mean we can add a little knowledge uh, about their city from history but but all that's really important is contained in a, a short couple of paragraphs found in the book of revelation chapter 2 verses 8 through 11 and so I'd invite you to join me there, either turn in your Bibles, of course the, the passage will be up on the screen as we look to, to this uh, passage today, the second letter to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And we talked last time that we met about how the Word of God often acts as a mirror and sometimes God holds that up before us and sometimes we can see ourselves in it. And the seven letters to the seven churches are like that. If we look often, uh, we can see ourselves in them. And, and this is a short letter. But I think if we, if we take a little bit of time, spend the time we need to here, I think we'll be able to see it uh, a bit more clearly. I think we'll have a, a better appreciation of the story of the people that are contained in these few verses here. And I think we may even see ourselves reflected there, even if that reflection might be faint as of yet. So the first thing that we're going to look at, um, I, I know, uh, may seem a bit foreign to some, but it's not quite as far away as you might think. You see, the believers in Smyrna were undergoing persecution. And many times throughout the history of the church, and in many places in our world today, uh, our brothers and sisters in the faith have been and are being persecuted for following Jesus Christ. And the church at Smyrna was just such a group of believers. They were suffering for what they believed. And so in verse 9, we read where Jesus is speaking, I know your afflictions and your poverty Yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Now there's an awful lot that's going on in that one verse, and we're going to look at it a little more closely, but we really could summarize um, everything that was said there by saying that the people in the church of Smyrna were suffering for their faith. They were in distress. That is, they were being mistreated, and they were poor. And, and that Greek word there for poverty uh, means real deprivation. It doesn't just mean poor. It, it means being deprived almost of the very necessities to keep one alive. And yet the city they inhabited was extremely wealthy. So imagine for a moment if you were in a place like that. You were living in a place that where there was plenty of work and plenty of food and clothing and shelter but but you're there and you can hardly get any of that any of the work or the food or the clothing or the shelter uh, all because you're a Christian um, all of that the distress and the poverty wasn't just the luck of the trawl so to speak uh, it, it wasn't just something that just couldn't be helped 
It all was actually caused by other people. And it's not just you, you understand. It's your family as well. And in my imagination, as I think about it, that's really the hardest part of that, the hardest to understand, the hardest to take. And yet it's even worse than that. You see, the believers in Smyrna were also being verbally attacked by the unbelievers of their day. The text says they were being slandered. And, you know, Christians have endured that kind of false accusations down through the centuries. In our day, we're called uh, intolerant haters. We're called that because we believe the Bible means what it says when it says that homosexuality is a sin. We don't hate anyone. In fact, we love the people who are caught in that, and we want to see them delivered. The truth is, as an unbiased observer would say, all of the intolerance is on the side of our accusers, as well as the hatred. They just can't stand anyone who disagrees with them and their agenda. And so we're slandered. And for most of us, the slander doesn't do much more, at least yet, much more than make us uncomfortable. For those in Smyrna, the price, as we'll see, was much greater than that. And so the text reminds us of something that we should know here. It reminds us that the slanderers, the accusers, whether they know it or not, are tools of the evil one. Satan, that word Satan, literally means accuser. And those who falsely accuse, who slander God's people, are members of his church. The text puts it as they were members of the synagogue of Satan. We would say it, they're members of Satan's church. And this morning it was particularly nasty and for two reasons. Um, first, it was the Jews who were doing it, and, and they should have known better. And, and the second is, is that in the Roman world, only the Jews were exempt from worshiping the emperor because everybody knew they were monotheists, that for them there was only one God, and they were exempt. And as long as the Christians were considered to be part of the Jewish religion, they were also exempt. But you see, what happened was is that the leaders and rulers of the synagogues began to denounce the uh, Christians and say they weren't. Jewish at all. And what happened was is that they lost the exemption that they had, which led to persecution by the state. And it really was also unnecessary. You see, the believers in Smyrna were persecuted by the state at the accusation of the Jews, just as the Jewish leaders used Pilate to Rome to put Jesus to death on that cross. I have to stop right here for just a moment, and, and say something. This text is not a condemnation of Jews. It's a condemnation of unbelievers and sinners who attack people that are at peace with them. This text and others like it in the New Testament have been used by Christians or people calling themselves as Christians and other people as an excuse to attack Jews. And that's not the intention here. It just so happened that in this city, the people who should have known better, the Jews were the ones that were leading the attack. 
but we are never justified in mistreating anyone. And we see what the result of that was in World War II when that was taken to the extreme and Jews were put to death by the millions. So those days in Smyrna, for that group of people, people like you and me, well, they were dark days for them, uh, but it really was about to get better, well, get darker. Things were bad, uh, but they were going to get even worse. And so Jesus tells them in verse 10, he says, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. So they were already being mistreated, deprived, slandered, but that was just the beginning. They were more yet to come, and verse 10 goes on to tell us what they could expect. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. So suffering in prison would be added to what they were already experiencing. Now I have to tell you, I do not know how hard it would be to be a prisoner in our country. I, I, I know it can't be pleasant, but I know that our penitentiaries are like country clubs compared to what prisons were like back in that day compared to what those in Smyrna would experience for, uh, when they were put in prison for their faith. Jesus told them that they would have to endure 10 days, and that's really a symbolic way of saying that the suffering would continue for an unknown period of time, unknown to us, known to Christ, known to God, but not to us. So it would continue for an un a specified period of time, but it would have a definite end. And so the people in Smyrna just didn't know when that would come. So they had to hang in there just like anyone facing any of that kind of thing in our world today and at other times don't, doesn't know how long that's going to be. They don't know if relief will come or not. Jesus tells us it will, but we don't know how long we might have to endure that. And so mistreated, deprived, slandered, and imprisoned, but we haven't quite get to the end of it. There's more darkness yet that they would face, and some would even die for their faith. So verse 10 again, be faithful even to the point of death. Or, as another translation puts it, remain faithful until death. In other words, it doesn't mean that you... Uh, are facing execution, you can stop being faithful so you don't get put to death. No, what it is is Jesus is telling us to be faithful even if they kill you for it. So if you were a follower of Christ living in Smyrna in those days, you'd have been mistreated, deprived, slandered, and prisoned, and even put to death for your faith. And all of that would have been done how else can I say it? But to say it this way, it would have all been done properly and in order. There were those who would have made the accusations against you and that you weren't a Jew and you wouldn't worship the emperor or the other gods and you'd have no legal standing. And the state would do its job and put you into prison and even put you to death. All very legal, all very official. But behind all of that machinery and the workings of the state and the accusations uh, stood the real source of the malevolence, who, as we've already said, is the devil. And the text tells us that Satan was working his will through all of that. The accusers were of his church, 
And the devil was the one putting them into prison and putting them to death. And it has always been that way. Satan hates God, and he hates his people, and whenever he's able, he attacks them. And usually it begins small. That's usually how it starts. And and then there's disdain, and there's mockery, and then there's real animosity followed by mistreatment on a personal level, and then, if possible, it's codified. And the machinery of the state embodies the hatred of the devil, and all of it is aimed at those who belong to God. Now, those of you who are familiar with the Old Testament will see here an allusion to the book of Job. So Job was a a man who was also tested by the hardship, uh, by the evil one, And Job hadn't done anything wrong. He had done nothing to deserve the bad things that happened to him. In fact, uh, the exact opposite was true. Uh, He went through that because he was an upright man, and he was singled out to suffer as he did. And that was what's true here, you see. These people were not deserving of the suffering that they were experiencing. They were simply faithful followers of our Lord, whom this world for no good reason took offense. You know, when you read this text here, there's nothing listed against them. This church and the church at Philadelphia are the only two churches in which Jesus didn't have some correction to offer to the church. There's nothing listed against them. And maybe you remember things like that happening, I don't know, in your life and business, or or maybe when you were a child in playgrounds. (laughs) Do you you remember uh, the whole class... uh, took a test and only one girl out of the whole class because she studied managed to pass and not only did she study but she aced it you remember how she was often treated afterwards she was treated unmercifully you know she was called a nerd he was told she was just simply showing off others said ah, she doesn't have any life anyway others implied she didn't really deserve what she got because uh, she was after all the teacher's pet i can remember a uh, a kid in my grade school, and uh, he was never invited to play kickball, not because he wasn't any good, but because he was just too good. I mean, he was better than kids that were two or three grades over him, and they just simply wouldn't let him play. And if he tried to join in, they complained to the teacher that he was just too big. And so that poor kid had to stand there as an outsider watching everybody else play. Something like that was happening here in Smyrna. The people in Smyrna were faithful believers who were persecuted and who would face even more severe testing, not because they deserved it, but because they were faithful and others took offense at that. And yet, that's really not the whole story here. It's really only part of the situation. It's the part which you can see with your earthly eyes but there's more to life than that there's more to reality than than our our physical eyes can see there's an entire spiritual realm and we had a glimpse of it when jesus revealed satan as the source of the persecution but there's more there yet than that i mean the spiritual realm is larger and grander and 
and the physical, and, and it's permanent. And to truly see and understand what's happening in the world around us, you, you have to understand how it fits in that larger reality. And that really puts everything into perspective. So these uh, things were dark there, and it was growing darker, but the people in Smyrna could take heart. They could be encouraged because Jesus had already provided for them. And the first way in which he provided for them was that he traveled the path they were on. And not only had he been there before, he had made it passable. You see, he'd opened the way. He'd unbolted the door to death. In fact, he knocked it off the hinges. And so verse 8, we read this, To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These are the words of him who is the first and last. Let's stop there for a second. That's the title of God, and Jesus is saying, that he's God here, and he goes on to say about himself, who died and came to life again. And Jesus, though he was God in the flesh and had never done anything to deserve it, had been persecuted and he'd been put to death. He'd gone down the hardest road that anyone may travel, and he cleared the way. My grandmother called him the great way maker. For he makes a way for us to follow him. He made our way to heaven. And he, and he shows us our way here as we live on the earth. So you imagine for just a moment this dark and dense jungle. And it's thick and overgrown. And within the reaches of that jungle, certain death waits. And, and people are being forced into its tangles. Uh, and they've never come out again. And then Jesus comes to our world and for the love of his people, for the love of us, although he doesn't have to do it, he freely goes into that jungle and uh, he goes into the darkest place, a place that we would never have to go when his father turned his back on him. And he does what no one else had ever done before and no one else ever could do. He comes out on the other side. And when he comes out, he leaves an opening all the way through. He made the way for us to follow after him. And even those who died before he came take that same way. He is the great way. Those in Smyrna were facing persecution and death. and Jesus had already gone that way and he'd overcome. In him they too could overcome. In him they could find the strength and the courage of the one who had gone that way before them. They could take heart that Jesus had prepared that way for them. That's part of the larger spiritual reality which puts our world into perspective. And there was more in this text uh, about the spiritual realm. I mean, even though things were dark and they would grow darker still, those in Smyrna were the inheritors of the great rewards earned by our Lord. Uh, did you notice it in the middle of verse 9, right in the middle of all that darkness, uh, that Jesus told them that they were wealthy? I'm going to read that passage again. He says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they're Jews and are not, but they're of the synagogue of Satan. You see, in the midst of all of that suffering, they were rich. And you couldn't see that with uh, earthly eyes. Their treasure was laid up for them in heaven. It takes spiritual eyes to see that. But it's there, and our Lord Jesus tells us there. it's there, and we can believe them. 
And not only were they rich, but they would be rewarded with abundant eternal life. So at the end of verse 10, Jesus says, I will give you life as your victor's crown. That crown symbolizes full and unending life. And it bears saying, I think, every time the topic comes up, or just about every time the topic comes up, eternal life is not just length of days. It's fullness. It's peace. It's joy. It's completeness. It's life. And it's life that never ends. And Jesus earned it for his people, and he gave it to all who belonged to him. And Jesus also reminds them that although Satan may be able to cause them to die for their faith, he has no more power over them. There's nothing more that he can do to them. Jesus puts it this way at the end of verse 11. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. The second death is eternal death. And the believer never comes anywhere even close to that. So a crown of life, great riches from the hand of the great way maker who opened the door for us into his kingdom, who cleared the way of every obstacle. That's reality. And that puts everything else into perspective. There was a man uh, years ago that um, had served in wartime with the king. And, um, and he got to know the king a little bit uh, during his time in the service. And the war was long over, and the man had made his way through life, and he had got himself into deep financial trouble. And in those days, uh, if you couldn't pay your debts, your family was uh, taken, everything you owned was confiscated and sold to pay for your debt. This man didn't know what to do. And so he went, and he managed to get an audience with the king, and the king actually remembered him. And he said to the king that he needed so much money, a big figure, more than you or I would have, million dollars, five million dollars, however it would translate into our uh, economy today. And the king said to him, I can't give you that. It's too small. I'm a great king. I can't give you something so little. And so he paid that man's debt. He bought his property, and he gave him enough money to live the rest of his life. That's what Jesus Christ has done for us. So we learn from the church in Smyrna that although God's people were in rags, they would go to riches they were facing death, but they would have abundant, everlasting life. They could take heart. They were going to inherit great rewards, all earned for them by Jesus Christ. And Jesus, the great way maker, had gone before them and opened the path through death and would help them on their way. They still had to do their part. They had to be, remain faithful. But he had already won the battle. Jesus Christ had already won the battle for us. Those are the spiritual truths that put all of the hardships of physical existence into its proper perspective. It doesn't lessen the impact of the suffering. But we see it against the larger background of the spiritual world. And those in Smyrna, although they didn't deserve it, 
They suffered and they would suffer more. But Jesus had made a way for them and they would inherit the great rewards which he'd earned for them. Now verse 11, which we already looked at a portion of it, also says something else. It says this, Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know, the words in this letter were intended for all of us, but not just for the people in Smyrna, but for all of God's people. So God's speaking to us in our day through these same words. And the question comes, how does that apply to us? How does it apply to us here in this room? Well, I think it applies at least in two ways. First, we, we already are faintly um, reflected here. I, I mean, we may not be facing this kind of persecution, but many of you have suffered. I, I mean, you've suffered financial losses or physical pain or, or illness, a loss of loved ones, and persecution is just one kind of suffering. And so Jesus puts into perspective the suffering of the martyrs, and so he puts into perspective all of our suffering, whatever it might be. So when we do go through those hard times, we can remember that Jesus is that great way maker, and he has done for us everything that he has done, and he loves us. And that's the first way that it applies to us. It doesn't mean that the pain isn't real. But it puts that pain into larger perspective. The second way in which it applies to us is that persecution is already upon us. Uh, it's not to the extent that it was in Smyrna, but it's here. It's only just the beginning, but it's here. And remember, it always starts small. So, 25 years ago, I stood in the pulpit of the church, the, my first church, and uh, I made an observation then. I, I knew that the Soviet Union, and some of you may be young enough, you don't know what I'm talking about, but I knew that Soviet Union, the evil empire, as Ronald Reagan named it, would eventually fall. I didn't think that I would live to see it. I thought maybe my children or their children would live to see it. But it did fall. And when it began to unravel, it fell like a house of cards. And I know that no nation has ever stood the test of time. And I know that if our nation falls, it will fall just like that. It will come apart it will unravel, it will fall like a house of cards. I have to tell you, my hope is, is that we're going to be different. I have scriptural reason for that hope, but I hope that we're going to be the one nation that might prove different. But the persecution is here, and it always starts small. In the last week or two, I believe it was, the fire chief the city of Atlanta was fired because he's a Christian. There's no other way to say it. He is a Christian man. He went to the city and asked for permission to publish a book. And it was a self-published book that would be used in a Bible study that he was leading. And, of course, it would be available to other people. 
There was a line in that book where he said that the Bible teaches that homosexuality and bestiality and pedestry were sinful. And the mayor of Atlanta was offended by that, and his city council was offended by that, and they fired him. That is religious persecution. And the reason they did it was for tolerance sake. Well, if you want to believe it, don't tell anybody. There is a woman who has a bakery in Portland, Oregon. She uh, refused to do a wedding cake for a gay couple that was getting married. She'd served them before and done things for them before, but it was against her beliefs to do that. She was very kind to them, very nice, offered to find another baker or help them find another baker, recommended them, but that wasn't good enough for them, so they sued her in court. And so she lost that court battle, and, and the state is now trying to take her house from her. There are hundreds of things like that are happening in our country today. They don't just revolve around homosexuality. It's happening over and over again. Our military ser servicemen are being harassed because of their belief. A, a, a man in the army held a Bible study in his home on his own time and was written a letter of, uh, what do you call that? Yeah, yeah. It's happening over and over again. Now, those aren't pleasant thoughts, but it's here. And, and, I, and, I, and, and from a biblical knowledge, I need to tell you that persecution always comes for one of two purposes, uh, either as a purifier or it's granted to us. So sometimes the persecution comes because there's no other way for God to get people's attention. But Paul also tells the Philippians that you, it has been granted to you not only to believe in God, but to suffer for him. The persecution, if it's going to come, is going to come, and God decides why it has to come. I don't know why it might come here why we see the beginning of it now. But I know one thing. I have to try to do something to get us ready. If I don't talk to you about it, who's going to? That's not pleasant. I hate talking about it. I wish I could just ignore it. Problem is, too many people are. I don't know what to do about it. I'm not a political person. But I know we ought to be on our knees. We ought to be praying. And we ought to be doing whatever it is we can do. But I know this. I know that no matter what, Jesus Christ has come. He's made the way. 
He shows us the way. And we might be persecuted, we might be poor, but we're going on to glory, we're going on to a reward. And he set that out there. And everything becomes, I think, just a little clearer. And when you really see that, when you really remember what he's done for us, then like my grandmother, you lift your hand and you say, glory. Glory. Glory be to God. Would you pray with me, please? Father, um, your people uh, suffered there in Smyrna. And, um, and we know, Lord, that you spoke those encouraging and comforting words to them. And those same words come to us here today and, and your people in other parts of the world, Lord, who already are suffering in ways that we can't even imagine. Lord, we're not uh, fatalists. We're not giving up hope. We're trusting you. We want to be ready for whatever comes our way. And we do pray for revival in this nation. As Lord, there's not a, a person or a program or a party that can save us. Only you can. And we need revival. And if that comes, Lord, then really nothing else matters. Persecution or, or renewal of our nation, Lord. We'll be with you and we can stand whatever comes our way. Help us please in Jesus' name. Amen.